everyone. Welcome to One to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Holly Casey, and I study and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, Holly's dad. Each episode, we pick an area of agriculture or food production to discuss. And this week, we're speaking with farmer Dallas Robinson. Hi, Chris. Hi, Holly. Welcome. 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 I'm so excited to have you on. Hello. I first came across you and your farm um, when you were moderating a talk about cooperatives in black farming. But I think you yourself are also a farmer, but I believe you also wear several other hats. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do, what you grow, to whom, how you sell it, where you're from, kind of that whole shaboodle. Basically, just give us your life story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a nutshell. Yeah. Um, so I am a, a new farmer. I planted my first seeds this year in March. I would not recommend starting a farm in a pandemic, but that's what happened. Um, my farm is in Whitakers, North Carolina, where close by where I was raised in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. So proud to be from here, really excited to be back home working land and starting a small scale. Um, I'm not organic certified, but I want to try to be, you know, as healthy and clean food as possible that I can provide. So I'm growing a mix of vegetables, some grain, and with a big emphasis on African crops. I'd like to um, provide foods that are culturally relevant to Black people here in the South that have been surviving here in the South um, from the continent many of us were kidnapped from um, and and made a home here in our staples, things like okra and sorghum, millet, rice. Um, And in terms of my other hat, yes, I work at the COFED, which is the Cooperative Food Empowerment Directive. Really love that organization. I was introduced to them was it last year, the year before last, I think, um, as a racial justice fellow applicant on which I got accepted um, and worked on my project for six months um, with the small team there, fell in love with what they're trying to build and do. And uh, that turned into a, jo- a job. And now I'm the director of communications at COFED. So it's really exciting inside of that work and my farm work. I'm also an educator and um Overall, I, I call myself a nourisher. I'm trying to heal the Black-Southern relationship to land and agriculture, especially. I think um, in, in the United States, we have a pretty big emphasis on the pain and suffering connected to land here, but there's so much more than that terror that existed, especially in the South. Um, I'm excited to nourish our relationship to the little earth and each other through food. Um, and cooperative economics. So you said that you wouldn't recommend starting a farm during a pandemic, but in general, would you recommend starting a farm? Yeah, with with um like an asterisk or something behind farm. I really don't like capitalism, and you know, right now that's what the economic system we live in is. So I think about that a lot with my farm name. Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm is, of course, named for Harriet Tubman, um, the amazing abolitionist and also multi-hat wearer, um, just an incredible woman and person in history. And then also to honor the legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer with the Freedom Farm 
cooperatives of um, Sunflower County, Mississippi, I think about farm as the way we generally think about it as this, you know, large scale food growing operation that sells uh, tons and tons of food to someone somewhere. Um, but I think overwhelmingly farms don't don't really work out for people. Our, our farmers aren't doing so great in the United States, and we can see across the world, like with what's happening in India over the last month um, and more, this has been going on longer, but farming has become, um, well, I think farming has roots in capitalism, which especially in the U.S. is um, rooted in slavery. So I think about the word farm, and I think growing food is amazing. Producing food is really powerful and important. Um, but when it comes to the the business aspect of a farm, that's not what I'm trying to encourage other people to do. I'm really more interested in land stewardship. So I think if you want to start a farm, really look at what that means. Um, I've been an apprentice for three years and learning from farmers who were all at different areas in, in their um business confidence and capability really opened my eyes to what is and is not lucrative decision-making. So that was helpful to see firsthand, but also sometimes really sad and painful um, for people and their families. And uh, I think if if you want to grow food, a farm is not the only access to do that. And there's also privilege and power in saying, oh, well, I'm going to homestead or, you know, have a small garden on land that I own. So um, yeah, I wouldn't always recommend a farm, but if you feel like that's what you want to do, I'm absolutely here to cheer you on and support. I love the way that you framed that, like farming as land stewardship with like an unfortunate side of capitalism. This mm -hmm. is kind of a conversation I've been having with a cousin of mine who's been talking about starting a farm and he keeps like coming up with these questions of like, what's the difference between, you know, biodynamic versus organic? And is it really better to have a farm or to rewild? You know, how can we, mm -hmm. how can we, you know, make the land the best that it can possibly be? And I, what, one of the things that I keep pointing to him is, is writings by indigenous folks and black folks talking about farming as a practice of land stewardship um, and kind of the act of engaging with the land in order to grow food on it um, as a way to care for it and be aware of its like rhythms and changes and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great way to start. You know, we have um, a lot of histories that have been buried and technology that's been stolen from people. And I think it's a great way to honor the land itself and the people who were original stewards to to have that learning um, resurface rather than, you know, the larger industrialized methods that are, are quote unquote, modern and how you can farm effectively. That's not always necessarily the case. So what brought you to agriculture in the first place? Um, I think I definitely want to honor that when I was a kid, I always played outside in the dirt. I feel really appreciative of that. And like I said before, growing up in Rocky Mount, there's a lot of farms nearby. My The high school I graduated from was <clears throat> literally right next door to a cow pasture. They'd come up to the fence sometimes between classes and move. So that was cool. <laughs> um, and I think 
I've always thought farming looked cool. It just seemed interesting to, you know, wake up and be outside and have animals and do stuff. I definitely had like a romanticized view of it. Um, and then as I got older, it was not a real option in my head. It was like get a good job did not include farming or a- agriculture or anything land-based. But my mom really inspired me with growing things. She was really into flowers. And so I'd see her in the spring and fall, you know, planting bulbs and moving them around. And then these amazing flowers would pop up months or weeks later. And I was always like, how does this happen? She didn't plant a flower. Where is this coming from? Um, So all those things, you know, set in me a real respect for land and nature. I've always loved being outside. And, And when I got to college, I was majoring in international studies in Arabic. I I was thinking I'm going to be a photojournalist and travel the world and tell stories. Um, And then I I did study abroad and quickly learned I do not want to do that. Um, But one of my courses inside of international studies was global capitalism, learning about the globalization of food and other industries really terrified me. I had some idea of, you know, like migrant workers here in North Carolina, I'd seen and heard about how they were treated. Um, I I saw the stigmatization and racist um, conversations regarding migrant workers in my hometown from people. So I knew there was mistreatment and unfair treatment of people but I didn't realize the global level of me being able to eat a pepper all year long was causing indigenous people in Mexico and Latin America cancer because they're sprayed with, you know, horrible chemicals um, while they're harvesting. And that, that really set into me this desire to do better. How can I consume smarter, which led me to, okay, maybe I can grow some food on my own. And that would be really nice. And um, when I got out of school, I was in a very urban area. I was living in Newark, um, working in the nonprofits, and I hated them a lot. I loved the youth development aspect, but they just seemed really insincere and and, um, not true to the work we claim to be doing. So I was starting to hate my life, really. And a friend of mine kept telling me, hey, you should apply to this program at Soul Fire Farm. That was called um, the Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion Program. It's now called BIPOC Fire. And the first year I ignored it. I was like, oh, this looks like camp. I don't have time for this. The second year I was like, "Mm, maybe, but I'm not going to actually make time for it. The third year, my phrase was, well, I hate everything and I hate my life. So why not give it a try? (laughs) And I went and I fell in love. Um, It was was life-changing. and really like open up all these possibilities that I'd kind of been daydreaming about. I wanted to come back home to North Carolina. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't believe there were any jobs back here for me. Um, I didn't think being gay and androgynous as I am would work out socially. So I had a lot of scarcity about coming back to this place and this land that I love. But Soulfire helped me see one other people who look like me and identify like me wanting to work land and be outside and, you know, feel the sun on our skin and get our hands dirty. Um, and I love the science and the culturally relevant history that was offered. So that just made me so excited. And I was like, what could I, you know, build 
back home and especially in the South that empower somebody at home like this? You know, how could I um, set this up? So I actually came up with the idea for the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm within that week. Um, and since then had been on a course that was 2017. And I got to apprenticing shortly after that. I, th- I think it was that fall. That's amazing. And before Hallie takes back over, I just want to say real quick, you know, when you talked about just trying anything because you hated your life, I love that not only you had that attitude, but I love the way you own it and are willing to talk about it. Yeah. So that's great. What a great story. Thank you. I am really curious. I know you said earlier that you like met cows at school, but did you know when you were younger or see any like black farmers in your community? Um, now being a young black farmer, do you know any young farmers or young black farmers in your area? Yeah, I did grow up seeing quite a few black farmers or at least hearing about them. Um, one ancestor I love dearly, Rosa um, Hargrove was our babysitter when we were really little. She and I shared the same birthday, May 28th. And um, Rosa actually grew up sharecropping and she would tell us about that when we were little. Um, so she didn't finish school. She grew up sharecropping, picking cotton, and she also worked at the cotton mill in town, which is now a brewery slash office space. Um, and uh, I I respected her sense of land a lot. Um, so that was one. And I remember when I was about 11, our dad made a friend who was a black farmer that owned quite a bit of land. I don't, I don't, I wonder where he is now, but we went out to his place once and we were shooting BB guns and like riding four wheelers. I loved it. I, I was absolutely like, this is how I want to live. <laughs> I just want to go mudding and shoot skeet and stuff like that. So, um, that was really cool, but I didn't see the agricultural side of his operation. Um, and now that I'm back home, I have been connecting with more. Um, in fact, th- these past three years, I've been connecting with more and more black farmers. There's actually another guy named Dallas Shackelford um, who lives a bit south from me in North Carolina, but I met his daddy and was on their family land that's generations old and they're known in their town for having the best collard greens and just got to hang out in their field. They gave me these two huge bags of mustard greens. It was amazing and just really nice to listen to his father talk about how this is important for our people to also be connected to to land and growing food. Um, Just Kendrick Ransom of Golden Organic Farm and my friend Olivia, who's from New York, but her family has land in Holly Springs that's starting in um, Agroforest, Oliver's Agroforest, doing shiitake mushrooms right now in the woods of her land. And some people out West that I'm connecting with, I think most of them aren't actually from North Carolina and don't have land yet, but they're they're deep in the work and really excited and trying to branch off to their own spots as well. That is so cool. I know when I was younger, I had a similar experience where I like knew some ranchers, but I never actually saw them ranch. I just ran around <laughs> on their four wheelers. Yeah. Um, definitely builds like a romantic idea that farming is just running around on four wheelers and getting real dirty. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't get to see the the hard labor when you're a kid. Right. Can you tell me a little bit more about the oral history project that you worked on? You mentioned this earlier up at the beginning, and it's such an incredible, such incredible work um, that you did as part of your racial justice fellowship for COFED. 
Yes. Um, so I was in the program for six months and what I wanted to do is a project called Trading Seeds. Right now I have one interview <laughs> and it's gold, um, but I, I'd like to get more of a collection up. This year I've been trying to keep my distance from elders and uh, inviting people to Zencaster who are over uh, 30 has not been super successful. <laughs> so um, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. Um when we'll be able to talk, talk. But the idea here is that um, our an- our ancestors and elders hold seeds and they have amazing wisdom. And I was specifically interested in talking to Black elders, especially in North Carolina, about their relationships um, in all its complication to land and food. Um, I've learned some really amazing stuff and have been thinking about the other media outlets I have. I, I, I received a book from an elder whose mother grew up in Appalachia when I was living in Asheville last year, and she was recorded by a journalist. So this is a book of her, an interview with her talking about, um, you know, how food was sustained on a segregated mountaintop community. And it's just really incredible and beautiful. And I think that we have a lot of imagery around Black people suffering and toiling land and sharecropping and not finishing school and having to work in fields um, and never having enough. But I know that that's not the full picture. And I think if we can, if I can get we, uh, there's multiple people doing this work as well. Um, elders' stories amplified, then we'll have a better sense of our food heritage and our food ways. Um, part of this project was inspired by, um, I forget the man who wrote the pot liquor papers. And um, there's another chef. Well, anyway, anyhow, that that history of food in the South and how it's um, obviously very influenced by Black and African culture, um, but what industrialization and fast food chains did to the diets of people here. So, you know, the the illnesses we have are very constructed in my mind, and I think that. Uh, trading seeds could also be a way to break the stigma of the South overall. I w- like I said, I went to school in New York, or maybe I didn't say that. I went to Vassar, and um, that's in the Hudson Valley in New York, very small school. And I was really shocked at how much people hate the South. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I knew we were a joke to people, but I didn't realize that people actually believed things like, um, well, y'all are taught that you won the Confederate or, or the Confederacy won the Civil War, which doesn't make any sense. But um, there was a lot of ignorance that I was just blown away by and felt mad about and defensive about at first. But it especially hurt when it came from um, other people of color who thought, like, the South is just full of racist and, you know, there, there's nothing but black and white people basically having a really ugly relationship going on in the South. And I thought that was very flattening of such a beautiful place with many types of people with amazing histories of resistance and power and cooperation here. So Trading Seeds is is my attempt to share what I find beautiful about my home in this region. That's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've heard people say they're, you know, afraid to come here because they're afraid they'll be trampled by Buffalo, but 
I've never spent <laughs> enough time in the north to hear anything quite that extreme. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, I've had I've had similar conversations and it's obviously very different for me as a white person trying to, you know, discuss and defend the the south and the culture of the south um with folks who are not from here. But it's just such a I feel like it's it's a very difficult thing to convey um like the the complexity of the south and and the extraordinarily um complicated nature of the south to someone who has never been here before mm-hmm. um can you tell me a little bit about like w- what it is that you find astonishing or beautiful or amazing um i mean it does we don't have to go on and on obviously about the south but mm-hmm. that's just one of the things that i've definitely like struggled with in the past so i'm just curious if you have any like specific things you pull out of your pocket when you're having those conversations yeah um the first thing is i don't know i i definitely I'm kind of a short, impatient person. So when someone insults the South, I'm just like, I'm not talking to you. But (laughs) (laughs) when I think of it personally, I'm always in love, in love with the sky here. I think North Carolina is so beautiful. um, And obviously the sky's everywhere, but something special about our clouds. But the land itself, and I know that the land doesn't actually look like what it did before colonization. So I think about that a lot, like, you know, the longleaf pine being endangered and gone and what the land must have looked like before. But what I can appreciate, um, some things I appreciate and love is the way various cultures have survived from, you know, the coast to the mountains, these different accents and and dialects that exist. Um, one of my favorite things that I think is really important for all of us to recognize, but especially for, for Black people's empowerment is like Africa and, and is alive here from okra to Geechee language to um, even, even inside of churches, there's a lot of spiritual um, ancestral survival that made its way on purpose, I believe. And, And that's something I just adore about this land. And I think there's a lot more, um, Black indigeneity to tap into here because people are close to the land and people do really love their collard greens. Like um, my my dad's wife's uncle, I call him Uncle Tommy as well, is an older Black farmer in Elm City. And just walking with him in his fields, he was born on a, um, he was born on the plantation his grandmother was enslaved on and uh, his parents were sharecropping at the time, but he grew up working that land and he now has a small plot up there where he grows. Um, and what an amazing thing to have that proximity. I know to some people that would seem really painful and terrifying, but as someone who doesn't know my ancestry, but two generations back, I think that is such a powerful thing to be able to say, my mother was born here and her mother was born here. These are their names on and on. And so that type of closeness to who you are makes it much harder for people to tell you who you are. And I think that's something about the South for us that I'm really excited to find um, celebration in. Um, And then food. We have amazing food across the different regions. And I just love the different types of you know, whose barbecue is better, Tennessee or North Carolina? Which part of North Carolina are you talking about? I think that creativity is an art form that other people try to emulate. We see it all the time. 
The answer is, of course, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not too keen on barbecue, luckily, but listen, when this episode comes out, y'all might want to edit that. <laughs> yeah, we got some fighting words in there, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, watch out. So I know that you're just starting on your farm and that you've had a probably very wild first year. Um, but I know uh, that your farm's purpose uh, is healing Black Southerners' relationships to land. And this is a lot of what we've talked about. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see your farm specifically playing a part in that work. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So first thing, the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm, Harriet Tubman, abolition, escaping, enslavement. I like what an incredible human being. Um, I think about Harriet Tubman as someone who believed in her liberation so much more than the systems that told her she wasn't a human being. And that is, I want everyone to be on that kind of flex. I think that is the wave. And imagine if we all said no to the systems that hurt us or hurt someone who wasn't us. Like what better world would we live in? And if we came back for those people like she did. So definitely uplifting that ancestor and her legacy there. Um, and there's so many pieces of Harriet Tubman's like story that I also draw on for my own personal power and, and collective dream of liberation. Um, and then Fannie Lou Hamer's cooperative freedom farm um, with emphasizing poor people. So I have uh, class privilege. My dad was a lawyer. My mother was a doctor. Um, I didn't grow up poor or even wondering like where my food was going to come from. I was pretty set. And I recognize that I recognize my role in having class privilege is one to get things out of the way for people who do not have the same class privilege as me and also working with class privileged people to keep pushing that work of let's get things out of the way. I, I There's not room for saviorism anymore or voyeurism in this work. There never was. So um, I want to uplift Fannie Lou Hamer's vision because that's one way of checking classes ideals. I, I grew up with a saying a lot in the house that was like the best way to help poor people is to not be one. And I mean, Harriet Tubman was literally in bondage and did a whole lot for a lot of people. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer was also a poor woman from the South um, who was brutalized by police <clears throat> for organizing people to vote and also um, considered not intelligent enough to speak at the Democratic National Convention by civil rights leaders, other Black people. And I think this elite, elitist... Um, pandering to white people to make them com comfortable so we can get free doesn't make any sense, doesn't work. Uh, so that's the first thing there. It starts with the name. I also just love hearing people say Harriet Tubman's name. So that was a kind of a trick and a device, um, but it's great. And for the healing Black Southern's relationship to land in the South, as I mentioned before, uh, we're taught... Um, trauma first and and so much trauma is relied upon to beat a message into people's heads and i think that's a super us american thing um scaring children into learning and you know making people afraid of things so they don't ask too many questions but down here um 
knowing how some people feel about seeing a field of cotton. It, it's recently been um, harvested where I am, and I think it's a really beautiful plant, and it's actually an ancestral plant. Cotton is from the continent and came over here on purpose. Um, and when we only have a story of pain with land, then we start to be averse to the land. So I see the farm healing all of that by one being a place of rest. I, like I said, started this year. I've been working really hard. I'm doing this alone right now. I I get help from family and some friends. I appreciate all of you who have come out, but that's been like, you know, two weeks out of the year (laughs) in total. And, um, my emphasis is like, I'm willing to grow this food. I'm not going to do it in a way that kills me. I don't want to do that. That was never the plan. And that's not important to me to break my neck out here in this field. But I am especially emphasizing that when people come out, I tell them, you do not have to help. You can go relax, take a nap, sit down, please walk. the. I invite people to walk the path first before they do anything, like go look around just be with the land. Um, And for me, inviting especially Black people and LGBTQIA Black people to rest first is not something that happens often anywhere. It's not conversations we even have with ourselves because we're so deep in the urgency of this culture. Um, Another way I, I was really looking forward to, but pandemic, social distancing, um, having lots of celebration on the land. I'm I'm a big fan of doing things on moon cycles. So um, inviting people to ritual work and um, having a communal altar space where people can bring offering if they'd like, inviting their spirits, um, inviting Muslim family to come pray on the land and telling them which which way is east. Uh, So offering space for people to tap into what makes them feel good and connected is something I see happening. And then of course, growing food that has our stories tied up with it. So I love okra. I have a a box to my right right now full of dried pods that I'll be um, seeding soon. Um, I grew sorghum this year as well and was really excited about that. The cane is sweet. So I bought that too. Um, a woman who is from Ethiopia, that's where sorghum's from. And so I bought her some sorghum heads and also split the cane with her. And it was just a nice thing because we were talking about what her people make out of the grain and how they use the cane. And there's also a guy from Senegal where she was that was also talking about what he does with the cane and his people, how they eat it. Just an amazing diasporic moment here in my little town of Rocky Mount. I loved it. And um, inviting educational space as well so we can unlearn the the pain and the suffering wrapped up in how we've been taught about farming and agriculture. Um, and also using real language. I'm, I try to remind people to, it's not a food desert, food apartheid, because these things are happening on purpose. Things I've learned from elders like Karen Washington, um, being direct about what the state of our health is because of the poison we're often often offered um, that's called food. Uh, so making room for conversation and teaching is something I'm looking forward to. And I would love that to be on farm learning as well. So that type of rest unlearning and 
decolonizing process can happen in a space that feels good to people. Oh my goodness. I am so in awe of all of all of the work that, that you're doing um, and that we'll continue to do. I am so, so grateful for your time today to come and join us on the podcast. Um, Dad, did you have any other questions before we wrap up? I don't think so. I mean, are you are you seeing... I know you said you're early on, you know, this is your first year, but uh, are you seeing anything change or is there anything that's happening that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, so much I'm excited about. This year, I um, one cool thing I just want to say, like I said, I've been apprenticing for three years. Um, early in March, I asked a neighbor, hired a neighbor to come disc and plow for me a quarter acre, which is what I was planning to grow on. But after building my little garden a few weeks before, I was like, this soil is in a rough state, lots of compaction. I don't think this quarter acre is going to work out for a sorghum crop like I would have liked it to. And after he plowed it, he's been farming over 25 years. He said, hey, you said you were going to grow sorghum on that. And I said, no, I'm going to cover crop it and try to bust up the soil a bit with some um, you know, radish and, and a cover crop mix that'll go deep. And he was like, oh, thank goodness. I didn't want to, you know, tell you what to do, but I <laughs> did not think that was a good idea. And I was like, yeah, I could tell. But it just felt so incredible. And and ma- like that was a moment that snapped this deep trust in myself. Like, girl, you've learned a lot and you have the wisdom of a person who's been farming for 25 plus years in your first month. Uh, and, you know, it didn't all happen in one month, but that right there gave me a confidence I've never experienced before. So I think whatever your passion is, it might not be starting a farm. I, I just feel like it's such an incredible, liberating thing to trust yourself deeply. And that's, you know, that's who my farm is named after. And this um, this feels like a beautiful opportunity to share with y'all on this podcast, what I'm working on and dreaming of. So I really appreciate both of you doing this work of, of giving us platform to speak about it. Well, thank you so much for being here. So yeah. Uh, where, where, uh, where would you send people if they want to find out more? Yeah, you can find, uh, me online, the Harriet Tubman freedom farm.com. And then I'm also on Instagram. That's Harriet Tubman underscore freedom farm. Amazing. Again, thank you so much, Dallas, for your time today. Uh, And I'm so excited to watch your work and see all of the dreams that we have discussed today come true. Thank (laughs) y'all. Peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. This show is made by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. If you'd like to connect with us, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One to Grow On Pod. Or join our Discord and Facebook communities and leave us your thoughts on this episode. You can find all of our episodes and transcripts as well as information about the team and the show on our website, onetogrowonpod.com. Help us take root and grow organically by recommending the show to your friends or consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onetogrowonpod. There, you can get access to audio extras, fascinating follow-ups, exclusive bonus content, and boxes of our favorite goodies. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Sharing is the best way to help us reach more ears. Be sure to see what's sprouting in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing.